It's Friday, December 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The White House has detailed its new strategy to fight coronavirus and keep Omicron at bay. One of the big changes is to tighten up the testing timelines for international travelers coming to the U.S. People will now have to test within a day of departure regardless of vaccination status and continue to wear masks on planes through mid-March. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what else is in the plan, testing reimbursements and booster shots. Next, new census data shows that more Americans are living alone as milestones keep slipping to later in life. 28% of all U.S. households are people living alone. The median age of men getting married is now 30.4 years old and women at 28.6 years old. Birth rates also continue to drop from an already record low last year. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill, joins us for more. Finally, better check to see if you're still paying for antivirus software protection. Many experts say you probably don't need to anymore. Computer security has evolved, most personal computing happens over the internet, and hackers are more interested in taking over your accounts for email, social media, or financial websites. Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The fifth thing we're doing is accelerate efforts to vaccinate the rest of the world and strengthen international travel rules for people coming to the United States. My plan I'm announcing today pulls no punches. Joining us now is Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. President Biden has uh, spoken about the latest efforts to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. We obviously have the new variant swirling around. In Omicron, we have a case in California. There was a case in Minnesota. You know, it stands to believe that there's probably more cases already swirling around in the states. But uh, he announced some some new things, some uh, expansion on other stuff. International travelers are going to have to test. Uh, they're changing the way those rules are. So let's start there on the international traveling side. What are we seeing with these new rules? So what you're seeing is a tightening of the testing timelines for travelers who are entering the U.S. from overseas. And up until now, international travelers had to test 72 hours before their departure for the U.S. And now what they have, are saying is that international travelers will have to test within a day of departure and that they will have to test regardless of vaccination status. So even fully vaccinated people will have to test. And these rules will apply to both U.S. citizens and foreign nationals and are expected to take effect early next week. So it's a way for the White House, I think, to make more stringent some of the screening that is currently in place for international travel and to try and mitigate the spread of this new variant here at home. But as you point out, it is already here. So there are also some other measures that they are taking on the domestic front, too. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to contain a virus like this. And obviously, one of the biggest methods it travels is with international travel, right? All of the variants of concern have originated in other countries. And obviously, they're getting here through that global travel that just happens all the time. So, you know, but uh, is it effective to shut down travel from certain countries? There's a lot of that's up to debate. But, you know, you have to try to act quickly and do whatever you can. You mentioned some of the other domestic things. This one might not make too many people happy, but the mask requirements when you're traveling, that's going to be extended as well. Yeah. So you know, right now we have this mask mandate that's in place 
for travel on planes, buses, trains, and also, of course, you're required to wear masks at airports and indoor bus terminals. So that was initially going to expire on January 18th, but the president announced today that they will be extending that mask mandate through mid-March. I do think it's interesting, though, because when it comes to just day-to-day life, there's a different tone you're hearing from President Biden, where he was really emphasizing that the administration is relying on existing tools. They're not imposing new mandates. And really what he did was he emphasized vaccinations and boosters. And you didn't see the kind of aggressive tone that the president had earlier in the year when we were in a different phase of the pandemic where he was calling on state and local officials, for example, to enforce mask mandates in public commercial spaces. That's kind of missing this time around because the administration says we're in a new phase. We already have vaccines and testing. And so they don't believe that we have to go to back to some of the pandemic era restrictions that defined a lot of the uh, a lot of the past year and a half. Definitely. I mean, there's no appetite really for lockdowns again. And beyond that, even, uh, you know, vaccine mandates that have been going, there's been a lot of pushback. So he just wants to get the word out. The public education campaign is a big part of this. Get your vaccine, get your booster shots. They're really emphasizing that stuff. And some of the new stuff, right? Uh, They're even uh, making family mobile vaccination clinics uh, to urge families to either get that first shot, get those booster shots. These are some of the newer things. As I mentioned, a lot of the stuff is just building off of things that they've been working on so far. Testing is a huge one because this is kind of one of those components that kind of started falling by the wayside a little bit once the vaccination push came. But they want to have people be reimbursed, at least, for the cost of at-home testing kits. This would be done uh, something done with health insurers. Yes, and that's been a big challenge for the administration because although they have uh, made more testing available, there has still been a shortage when it comes to the availability of rapid at-home tests. And there is also a widespread sense that they cost too much. They can cost $20 or more. Sometimes they're not available when you go to the local pharmacy. And so what Biden announced today is that these at-home tests, for people who have private insurance, they will be reimbursed through insurance coverage. And then for those people who do not have private insurance, which, of course, is also a sizable chunk of the population, the administration is going to try and make more of these tests available at community health centers and rural clinics and other harder-to-reach areas or areas that serve underserved communities. So, you know, I think that that's certainly something that is new because a lot of public health experts have said that, to your point, the administration kind of dropped the ball on testing, that it should be a lot more accessible than it is right now. And that's going to be a key part, again, of combating a new variant is the the ability for people, including people who are fully vaccinated, to test quickly and self-isolate if they need to isolate or take other measures if they test positive. Right. The guidance for that, uh, the testing stuff is going to be released by January 15th. From what I saw, it's not going to be retroactive or anything. So we're going to have to wait until then before reimbursements can start. So just uh, there'll be more information coming out about that one. But yeah, it's an important part just to kind of keep people in the know of what their current status is, right? So they can not go to work, not travel, all that. It's it's a a big, important component. And then, uh, as we mentioned, too, the education for Uh, more booster shots. That's another big part of it. that They want to make sure everybody can go out and get those. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good news is more people are living longer. Bad news is uh, at least, well, I'm I'm not terribly sure it's bad news. 
at least a lot of people have decided to delay some of the steps in life that their cohorts would have taken at earlier ages. Joining us now is Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Reed. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm always curious when the Census Bureau releases data about what Americans are up to, living habits, all that stuff. And some of the recent stuff that we've seen is that more than a quarter of American households are made up of people living alone. Uh, You know, we're seeing a lot more senior citizens out there. We're seeing younger Americans delaying some of these life milestones. And, you know, all of this data together just kind of uh, are are continuing these trends that we've been seeing for some time. So, Reed, tell us a little bit more about it. So what we've basically seen over the last several decades is that everybody is making big lifestyle decisions later in life than previous generations would have. So what I mean is the the typical 25-year-old 20 or 30 or 40 years ago might have been married, might have had a house, might have been free of student debt, things like that. The typical 25-year-old today is not doing any of those things. So uh, we're, we're basically having children later, we're getting married later, and a big part of that is the hangover from the Great Recession a decade ago. You know, the, that recession was timed so that an entire generation was effectively entering the workforce at a time when there were few jobs to be had, a few good jobs to be had, a lot of downward pressure on, uh, on wages and things like that. So basically, the millennial generation started out their adult life a little delayed, if you will. And they spent more time at home with their parents. They spent more time accumulating debt out from which they're now having to claw. Uh, And at the same time, on the other end of that spectrum, we're living longer so that there are more people who are of advanced age living by themselves who might otherwise have been dead because we didn't have the medical science that we have today. So some good news and some bad news there. The good news is more people are living longer. Bad news is uh, at least, well, I'm I'm not terribly sure it's bad news. At least a lot of people have decided to delay some of the steps in life that their cohorts would have taken at earlier ages. Let's talk a little bit about marriage because those were interesting. As you mentioned, when the Census Bureau was analyzing this data first in 1947, the median age that a man would get married was 23 years old and a woman was 20 years old. Now it's 30 years old for a man, 28 years old for a woman. So that is a big jump. So consider that back in 1950, just 23% of those over the age of 15 had never been married. Today, that's up to 34% have never been married. So on one hand, a smaller share of us are living with a spouse. About 50% of Americans are living with a spouse today, down from 52% a decade ago. On the other hand, more of us are living with non-spouses. So the share of Americans who are living with an unmarried partner, uh, you know, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, um, you know, something that's not legally a marriage, is double today uh, what, it is, what it was back in 2001. Uh, up to 8% from 4%. So it tells you that we're, we're still cohabiting almost as much as we were several decades ago. But the share of people who are taking the plunge and actually signing the document that says, you are my wife and your husband, uh, is, is going down. And a related issue, the birth rates. Um, those have been falling for some time. There was recently a Pew Research survey that said non-parents ages 18 to 49, 44% of those said they're likely not to have kids And one of the top reasons was simply that they just don't want to. But birth rates have been declining. Right. And that's that's the overall trend here that sort of these things are all sort of contributing to each other. But a lot of these trends, lower rates of marriage, the later entry into the uh, sort of into later stages of life, 
all contribute to what people call the baby bust. The number of kids who have been born uh, has been dropping precipitously for decades. It's really speeding up lately. Uh, back in, in 2020, we had the lowest birth rates of any year since 1973. I, I should say, by the way, the lowest number of births since 1973, when, of course, the U.S. was a much smaller country than it is today. And 2020, you might think to yourself, oh, that's all because of the pandemic, right? Nobody wants to have a kid in the middle of the pandemic. But the numbers in January, February, and March, you know, pregnancies that were that began long before anybody knew what a coronavirus was, were already well below the 2019 rates. And by the way, some of the demographers that I talked to are telling me that the birth rates in 2021, the January, February, March numbers, are even below 2020. So we are, as a society, just replacing fewer of ourselves with new births. The birth rate is just plummeting and has been for a long time now. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting when you think back to, you know, when we were going through the height of the pandemic, right? And there was all this talk about, hey, we're probably going to see a baby boom. What else is everybody doing but being in lockdown and, you know, being with each other and uh, and whatnot? And those numbers haven't panned out either. You know, this uh, baby boom, as you mentioned, was a bust. There haven't been more an increase in births. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of troubling downward spiral, if you will. I mean, there were just 3.6 million births in 2020. That's down 700,000 from the peak of 2007. There was a, strong, a smart demographer up at the University of New Hampshire named Ken Johnson. Uh, he estimates that basically since that 2007 peak, the baby bus has led to 7.6 million fewer people in the United States than we might have had had trends just continue to pace. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. You got it. Thanks again for having me. Imagine this oscillating fan is your computer password, and David Hasselhoff is a cyber criminal. Do you allow Hasselhoff to have his way with your oscillating fan, or do you deny it? Protect your oscillating fan from David Hasselhoff. Deny digital dangers with Norton Internet Security 2011. Joining us now is Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Hey, love to be here. Uh, I saw the headline for your article. It piqued my interest right away. And then I uh, went over to your Twitter account and I thought it was the perfect tweet. I wrote something for you to show your parents this holiday season. And it's actually about antivirus software. Anybody who's been on a computer knows that for a period in time, you needed this antivirus software to protect you from malware, downloading programs, downloading music way back in the day. It was always a mess for the computers, but a lot of experts say you probably don't really need it anymore. And I'm trying to rack my brain the last time I even bought some or subscribed to anything. So you wrote a story about it and you you, uh, focused on somebody who works in cybersecurity, said he met up with his dad, and his dad was still spending $60 a year on some of this stuff. So tell us some more about it. Yeah, well, um, he's not actually the only one. I've spoken with several people, including other cybersecurity reporters and even myself, who've experienced this phenomenon of being someone who's kind of savvy with where the state of cybersecurity is right now and just like suddenly realizing a parent is still spending money on this kind of vestigial product of yeah, antivirus, which was really, it's, it's kind of a leftover thing from several years back. And I, I would want to clarify, I'm not saying no one needs antivirus. I'm saying you don't need to pay for it because any device you have that's kind of reasonably patched is going to be as fine as anything you can pay for on the market for personal use. 
Right. And that, that's a very important distinction. And, you know, you mentioned in the article too, a lot of this highlights how computer security has evolved. A lot of this stuff is done with regular patches, regular security updates on your devices, things like that. And then just how many people really do misunderstand what the main threats are to their computer security. It's all changed in recent times. In the early days, you know, uh, say in the 90s, you lived on your Windows machine, say, and it was such a convoluted process. We were all always afraid of viruses. And now we kind of live in our browsers, which have a lot of security protections built in as well. All the major modern browsers do. And really what you got to worry about instead is, you know, kind of account takeovers for important accounts, which means that, you know, you need to have strong passphrases. You need to not reuse passwords from account to account because if one gets found out, a hacker is going to try it on different accounts. But that's really where your efforts should be rather than paying for a service that <laughs> you know, Windows gives you for free anyway. Right, yeah. And, and let's talk about that. Uh, as you mentioned, Windows gives it to you for free now. They have Microsoft Defender built into their stuff. For a long time, there was this myth that you know, Macs can't get viruses, but you mentioned the article too. It was kind of well-founded at least because they, from very early on, built in a lot of this antivirus stuff. So all these computer systems now have all that stuff built in. It's way more user, maybe not user-friendly is the right word, but uh, user-considerate in that sense. It's not a solved problem, but it's one that just your average consumer doesn't need to prioritize, really. <laughs> there, are, there, there are bigger things to worry about. Yeah, there was a survey done by security.org, their cybersecurity advice website. They estimated that there's still nearly 45 million households paying for antivirus software. And uh, I, I mean, I, I know I get the alerts all the time. I just bought a very cheap laptop that I needed just to do some uh, audio editing uh, as part of the podcast and things like that. And that Norton antivirus alert comes up every time. I, I didn't buy it because I mostly use that machine offline, but I, I see that thing popping up all the time. And as you mentioned, what to do instead is really all about maintaining those strong passwords, adding that two-factor authentication. Those are the things that are going to carry you through mostly. But you yeah. did mention that, you know, some of these services do offer other benefits, other things that that could be helpful, although even those are limited in scope too. A lot of these things, and I don't want to say if it's a service that really appeals to you that you, you think you need it, I'm not saying don't do it. I don't think it does you harm. But a lot of these services will say, you know, hey, we don't just provide antivirus protection. We'll monitor the dark web to see if your information is on there. Well, I mean, there are free sites that let you do that. And they also, these things don't take your information. They don't scrub the dark web so that criminals no longer have, you know, your social security number or your name and email address. If it's out there, it's out there. And that's unfortunate, but it's the truth for a lot of people. And we kind of have to deal with it from there. Yeah, it's at that point, it's already too late. Uh, <laughs> your information is out. It's not going to take it back for you. And and going back to the point, right, that the focus of hackers now is different. They're not trying to infect machines per se. They're trying to take over your personal accounts, your email, your social media, your financial websites. That's how they're trying to spoof you now. Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.